Ruth is a truly important and profound book found in the pages of Scripture. Even so, the book of Ruth is often neglected or mischaracterized in church. We aim to remedy that with this sermon series. Because in this little book of the Bible is an awful lot of information about the plan of salvation. Jesus Christ is the main character in the book of Ruth, and he's not mentioned in it even once. Yet, through the faithful lives of Ruth and Boaz, we see far more than what is generally considered one of the great love stories. We see the unfurling plan of human redemption. Welcome to Glendale Christian Church, everybody. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the lead minister here at GCC, and I'm so grateful that you've decided to worship with us. Glendale Christian Church is a church all about discipleship. And we know here at GCC that discipleship involves transformation. And we know that transformation starts with the renewing of our mind. And so we're a church that presses the renewing of the mind. But we know that transformation doesn't stop just in the mind. We believe in transforming heads, hearts, and hands. And it's this sermon series that's going to help us accomplish some of that transformation because we know that we are going in the right direction as a church on the move with what God has for us. But the world in which we stand is in dire need of a new direction. So many people in the world today worship at the false altars of the altars of false gods like power or scientism or death or lies. This land needs to hear a call to something greater. So many people in our world today believe that love equates to sex, that commitments are conditional, and that the ideal woman is defined by looks rather than character. This land needs to see that loving kindness trumps sexuality, that commitment is a calling not to be cast aside in the face of turmoil, And that the ideal woman is of noble and valorous character, which transcends looks. This world needs to hear a call to something greater. So many in this world do as they see fit, not as God would have them do. So many abandon marriage or family, advocate the killing of the unborn, denigrate our police officers, disrespect our armed forces, ignore our constitutional heritage, exchange education for indoctrination, and embrace sinfulness rather than holiness. This land needs to hear a call to something greater. This sermon series will issue that call. The book of Ruth is worth our focused attention. We will be in the book of Ruth for five Sundays, during which time we will have the opportunity to deepen our devotion to God Almighty, during which time we will have the opportunity to intensify our allegiance to Lord Jesus, during which time we will have the opportunity to decrease our dependence, to increase rather, our dependence on the Holy Spirit and to become more and more devoted to the Word of God as we dedicate ourselves to the study of the book of Ruth. But that's just it. We must actually study the book of Ruth, not just hear about it in a sermon for 30 minutes once a week. We need to focus our attention on it. Therefore, I want to issue a challenge to this congregation at the top of the sermon rather than at the end of it like normal. This challenge is lofty, I admit that. 
but I think we're up for it. It's a challenge of daily devotion. Are you ready for what the challenge is? Okay, here it is. Read the book of Ruth and Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31, and one chapter of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9 successively, every day during this series. Every single day during this series. The way it works is I want you to read the entire book of Ruth, all four chapters of this little book, every single day. And I want you to read Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31, every single day. And I want you to read one chapter from the first nine of Proverbs every single day. So today, you would read Ruth and Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, and Proverbs 1. Then tomorrow, you'd read the entire book of Ruth, Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, and then Proverbs chapter 2. And then the next day, the same thing, but Proverbs 3. And the next day, the same thing, but Proverbs 4. So that during this next four weeks, because today is the first of our five sermons, during the next month, you will have the opportunity to read the book of Ruth 30 times. You'll have the opportunity to read about the wife of noble character so many times. And you'll have the opportunity to read through Proverbs 1 through 9 successively a number of times. The book of Ruth is worth our attention. And so, I want you to read it. I want you to read the whole thing every single day, along with Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, and one chapter of Proverbs, chapter 1 today, 2 tomorrow, 3 the next day, so on and so forth, every single day. And the reason I want you to do this is to enhance your discipleship. It's not so that you can have some legalistic rote check mark that you can just knock next to, oh, read some Bible today. No, 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 no. This goes much deeper than that. This is to enhance our discipleship. The transformation starts in our heads. And we're going to get some head knowledge, that's for certain. Knowledge of God's Word by reading God's Word so often. Insight into some of the major concepts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're also going to have the opportunity to gain insight and awareness of important concepts that help deepen our appreciation of God's plan, such as typology and allegorical interpretation. I'm going to teach with a lot of typology during this sermon series, and I'm going to teach you some about allegorical interpretation, and it's going to be great. But in order for that to take deep root, I need the fields of your mind to be tilled appropriately. I need you to know what's going on in the book of Ruth so that you're not just coming into it blind. I need you to read it every single day. And I need you to prepare for wisdom and nobility every single day so that when I start laying out these concepts, they can find their root and the Holy Spirit can produce the good fruit that He has in store for us. We're going, definitely, to transform our minds. But it's not just about our heads, it's also about our hearts. And here, by reading the book of Ruth over and over and over again in parts of Proverbs, we will be inspired to devote ourselves to the same kind of kindness and wisdom we see on display in the book of Ruth. And not only that, into our hands, into our loving obedience, will come the opportunity to hold firmly to godly conviction even while the world around us strives for what is not worth having. And make no mistake, the world around us strives for what is not worth having. What in this world is there that is worth having when compared to God? 
Nothing. There is nothing in this world that appeals to us like God. And so God sends us back into the world to tell this lost and dying world about a better way. This world needs to hear a call to something greater. And we get the opportunity to take what is transformed in our minds, expressed in our hearts, delivered through our hands to this world so that they can see there is something more and we can challenge and encourage them to come hear the truth. Now the reason that I want you to read Proverbs 31 verses 10 through 31 every single day is because Ruth, the title character of our story, is a woman of great character. Now, Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, describes a wife of noble character. And we need to understand what kind of woman this is. In fact, when the Jews order their Bible, when they order their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, they place the book of Ruth after Proverbs so that the book of Ruth is the first thing you read immediately after reading Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. Because Ruth is supposed to be this embodiment or type of the wife of noble character. Now, the wife of noble character is very, very important to me. You see, I've always been impressed with my wife well before she even became my wife. I remember back when the year was 2001 and we had just finished what was my second year of Bible college and Kim had finished her uh, first year of Bible college and we were going into the summer and, and we were going to be apart. And so before everybody had cell phones, I remember knowing that I had to get calling cards now, calling cards, for some of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, are little credit card-sized slips of plastic that have special numbers on them, and you can get to a phone and enter these numbers so that you can call long distance, because not every phone in the world had long distance back even 20 years ago. And so I knew I had to stay in constant contact with Kim, and so I had to be able to call her. But there needed to be another way, because calling cards were expensive, and so Kim helped me set up an email. I didn't have an email address. Can you believe that? And so she helped me set up a Hotmail account. And we went through Hotmail because her email address, when she entered it, get ready for this, Proverbs31girl at Hotmail.com. Oh, and I knew it. I knew it right then and there. I knew it right then and there. This girl was going to become my Proverbs girl. She was going to become my wife. I was already enamored with her good looks. I was already, already enamored with her in, incredible uh, mind. And I already knew about her godly character. But the fact that she had the desire to develop this godly character well before she ever had uh, an awareness of who I was or an interest in even dating or marrying anyone, she was going to make herself into the woman of noble character. I knew right then and there. That's it. That's it. I've got to marry this girl. And I did. And it's so good to be married to a wife of noble character. Who can find her? She's more rare than rubies. And you need to learn about this wife of noble character. Because all of you can become wives of noble character. All of you men can become men of wisdom. And as we read through Proverbs and we get wisdom, and as we read through the end of Proverbs and we learn about the wife of noble character, and as we read the story of Ruth, the wisdom and nobility of these things will ring true. So that is my challenge. And I believe we can do it. 
And together, as we grow deep into the Word of God, out of that depth will come fruit that the Holy Spirit will produce that will change not just this congregation, but this community. I want us to strive for what is worth having. And what is worth having is wisdom and nobility. I want us to strive to be great people of wisdom and nobility. The book of Ruth is worth our considered attention. Now, the book of Ruth takes place during a time period known as the time of the judges. In fact, Ruth 1.1, the very first sentence of the book opens this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The judges represent a very important time period in the history of Israel. Think about creation, and it goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created mankind, and there was Adam and Eve, and they had their kids, uh, Cain and Abel and Seth, and then after all of that business, they had, after all the fall and the murder, then came Abraham, or then came Noah eventually, and the flood. And after that came the patriarchs, where you get Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Joseph, and then 400 years of Egyptian slavery over them. And then God saves his people, the Israelites, from the Egyptians by raising up Moses and his brother Aaron. And God delivers them through the Red Sea with a miraculous mighty right hand, gives them the Ten Commandments, gives them the law, yet they still sin. They wander for 40 years, finally find the Holy Land. Then Joshua leads them on a conquest of the Holy Land. It's after that conquest. But before you get to the United Kingdom of King Saul, and King David, and King Solomon who builds the temple. It's that middle period after the conquest, but before the United Kingdom that the period of the judges takes place. And this is a time period typified by the very last sentence of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verses 20, or verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. And they saw fit to sin. A lot. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound like the world in which we live today? It seems that not much has changed in human nature over the 3,000 years since the period of the judges. And yet one thing has changed, the way that God will bring about our redemption. You see, before Jesus and the cross, during the time period of that judges, during that 300 plus years from the conquest to King Saul, that's when judges, great judges like Ehud, the left-handed judge who would stab fat kings to death, and Deborah, the lady judge who would deliver the nation, and Gideon, and Samson, and some of these great characters from the Old Testament. This is their time. But the reason those great characters had to be raised up is because the people were in such, such sin. This is how it worked. People would sin. The nation would sin. And because of their sin, God would allow foreign invaders to take over. Almost like you're reading Romans chapter 1. How God will just give people over to their own sinfulness. He's foreshadowing this in the Old Testament. And then, maybe it's the Moabites, maybe it's the Philistines, maybe it's one of the other places. They'll come and they'll take over. And everybody in Israel suffers. And it is bad news. And for years, they're suffering under the oppressive yoke and bondage of these foreign invaders. And so the people start to cry out in sorrow. 
They, they present their supplication to the Lord. We're so sorry for all the bad and stupid sin we've done. Please save us. And God sends a judge to deliver salvation. And now this judge, he was not a king. This judge was a particular human ruler who had a very temporary ruling span and he was sort of like a warrior governor. And he, and in some cases she, would come out and would whip up on the bad guys. Kill them dead, rescue the people, call people to obedience, and then go back off to obscurity, in which case the cycle would start all over again. And you think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. This happens like 12 cycles worth in the book of Judges. That is the exact time frame that Ruth happens. While the judges ruled, Remember how I said in the Jewish Bible, Ruth immediately follows the book of Proverbs so that you can read about the wife of noble character and then start reading about Ruth who typifies that? In the Christian Bible, we place the book of Ruth immediately after Judges because we want to highlight the disparity and the juxtaposition between the sinfulness of the people of Israel and the faithfulness of some within Israel, typified by Ruth and Boaz. And so we see the placement in Scripture in a very, very important way. The book of Ruth takes place during the most tumultuous time in Israel's history and highlights the difference between those who indulge in every sinful whim and those who choose obedience. That's why we place it where it happens. So what happens actually in the book of Ruth is this. There's a man who lives in Bethlehem and he's got a wife named Naomi. Now, things go bad and a famine strikes the land and so they decide that they're going to move to the country of Moab for a while. During their time in Moab, Naomi's husband dies. And so do her two sons who had married Moabite women since they'd moved to Moab. So now, one of these Moabite women is named Ruth. So both Naomi and her daughters-in-law are widows which is not an advantageous position to be in 3,000 years ago. You couldn't just go get a job. If you were a widow, you were completely dependent on other people. And so this is really, really bad news. But then God causes food to reemerge in the region of Bethlehem. And so Naomi and her two daughters-in-law start to head back to Bethlehem, but knowing how difficult it is going to be, not just for a couple of widows, but for a couple of foreign widows to go to a different land, how they might not be accepted, they might be ostracized. Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, hey, why don't you ladies stay here? Stay here, gals. Go back with your family. They can take care of you. And one of the daughters-in-law says, okay, see ya, and goes back home. But not Ruth. Ruth says, no, no, no. My commitment to your family is lifelong. And where you go, I go. And what you do, I do. And even though my husband, your son, is dead, I'm with you till I'm dead. And I'm with you and your God. And Ruth leaves her country. Ruth leaves her family. Ruth leaves her old way of worship. And now she is all in for Yahweh. She's all in for the only one true God of the universe. And as they finally get back to Bethlehem, Ruth shows herself to be a very diligent and hardworking woman by picking grain in a field. The owner of this field is a man named Boaz who happens to be a relative of Naomi's dead husband. This is very important. This man, Boaz, is taken with Ruth because he is a godly man and he offers Ruth protection and provision because of the nobility of her character. Because of this, 
Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, says, he might be sweet on you. Why don't you go ask him to extend that uh, protection and provision even farther and marry you, thus becoming our kinsman redeemer? Now, this would be great because Ruth would be married, she'd be integrated into society, Naomi would get some land back that she had to sell because she was so poor, and so Boaz eventually does. He becomes the kinsman redeemer of Naomi and Ruth, marries Ruth, starts providing for Naomi, and Ruth and Boaz have a deep abiding love, and eventually they have a child named Obed. Now, Obed happens to be the grandfather of a guy named David, what you might know him as King David. That's right. The book of Ruth is all about setting up Jesus because you have to get King David because Jesus is a Davidic king. Jesus is the one who fulfills the prophecies about the king in the line of David. So don't confuse it. Ruth is a love story, sure. In fact, it's widely considered one of the very greatest love stories in all of recorded history or literature. But the book of Ruth is so much more than what it appears at first glance. The Holy Spirit was operating on a level of allegorical depth rarely paralleled in all of Scripture when he inspired the prophet Samuel to record this true story. The book of Ruth is worth our focused attention. And some of the key themes that you're going to run into as you read the book of Ruth every single day include providence. Providence is the hand of God operating in the lives of individual humans and in the story of humanity to bring about His desired divine ends. Divine providence is often mistaken for happenstance or coincidence. And in fact, one of the phrases or a couple of the phrases you're going to read as you go through the book of Ruth daily are phrases like, and it just so happened, or phrases uh, like, as it turned out, or phrases like, just then, which a lot of people might dismiss as nothing more than coincidence, but the book of Ruth ends in a most peculiar way with a genealogy. A genealogy is a list detailing how somebody came about. In this case, it's a list detailing how King David came about, a forerunner of Christ and a type of Christ. And so, this genealogy describes God's divine hand of providence orchestrating things in such a way to bring about His desired ends, ends that result in all humanity being blessed with an open door for any of us to be saved. You have to have King David in order for Jesus to be on the Davidic throne that will last forever. King David's got to come first. And so, you're going to see providence in this book. But another one of the themes in the book of Ruth you'll notice as you read it daily is the theme of obedience. Boaz is a man of great obedience. In fact, the book of Ruth could be named Boaz. It's just as much about him as it is about Ruth. And Boaz is a man of high integrity and tremendous obedience. He follows the letter of the law and he follows the spirit of the law. He's a wise and wealthy man of God who owns many fields and employs many workers. His obedience to the Mosaic Law allowed Ruth and Naomi to eat and to survive. Now here's how that works. A part of the Mosaic Law, which we will get into, was to leave the corners of your field, if you were a field owner, 
unharvested so that the poor among you could glean grain from the edges of the field and have food to eat. The only reason that Naomi and Ruth were able to live is because Boaz follows the law. He doesn't seek to maximize profits. Instead, what he does is seek to follow the law. Boaz is inspired by Ruth's hard work, her work ethic, and her devotion. And he makes sure that he doesn't seek to marry her until an even closer relative of Naomi's dead husband has the opportunity to fulfill the job of kinsman redeemer. And it's only after this other relative can't get the job done that Boaz says, I will do as my heart desires and I will marry you and I will redeem both you and your mother-in-law. Now, this, this obedience is very different than we see today because today people look for every excuse they can to get out of following the law. We want to come up with every tax loophole we can. We have an entirely different system of welfare. The welfare system 3,000 years ago in Israel was don't harvest that corner of the field so that the poor people could go work and get their food. That's not how it is today. How it is today is people are looking for handouts. Now, I understand if there are people who are infirmed, injured, or incapable of work, we have to take care of them. But why is there not a work component to every state's welfare? That, that, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I know a little something about welfare because I've been on it. You guys know some of my story. You know about when I got fired from Bible college and we had to sell the house and didn't know what to do and didn't have any money and so went to Arkansas to go get some more degrees and study it up and, and I wasn't sure exactly what I would do and so I was a teacher at the University of Arkansas, a teaching assistant, and I was an associate uh, minister at a little church in Arkansas. I was working hard, two jobs, and my wife was working full-time raising our four children at home and we didn't have enough to make ends meet and so we got SNAP, food stamps. And every month we would get money for food. And at first I was really, really embarrassed by this. I was like, oh man, I'm supposed to be working hard. And then it dawned on me, I am working hard. I'm the exact kind of person food stamps was invented for. The kind of person who's seeking to better himself, working his tail off, whose wife is working her tail off, raising your family, and I just can't get it done, and so society helped me out. And for that, I'm very grateful and will continue to pay back through taxes for the rest of my existence on earth. That's not how it was in the Old Testament. And if not for Boaz and his obedience, things would have turned out very, very differently for Ruth. But remember, God's providence is also in this book. Another theme you're going to read as you go through this book daily is the theme of kindness. Kindness. Ruth is remarkably kind to Naomi. Boaz is remarkably kind to Ruth. And Ruth is remarkably kind to Boaz. The kindness described in the book of Ruth is actually known as the Old Testament concept of chesed. This is the Hebrew word for loyal or loving kindness. And our culture often focuses on love as something you can get. And it obsesses about the feelings associated with love. But if you read Scripture, you recognize that Scripture is not just about the appropriate receipt of love. It is also about the very appropriate giving of love. It's love given, not just love received, that Scripture drives at. And in fact, as you read through this Hebrew word, chesed, it's driving at the concept of loyal and loving kindness. And when it's used to describe God, chesed 
is often used as a covenant term describing the relationship between God and his people. It depicts God's loving and faithful and merciful, gracious, kind, good, and benevolent ways. And we don't have a single word in English that perfectly equates with hesed. And so we have to use compound words and multiple words to get the job done. In the book of Ruth, you're going to see chesed used three different times. And it's going to be used in terms of being kind to another human or asking God to be kind to another human. No one uses chesed for self-gain. They're lovingly kind for the gain of others. Pay careful attention to the theme of kindness as you read Ruth every single day. But by far, the most important theme in the book of Ruth shows up and it should be the centerpiece of your daily devotion to God as you read through Proverbs and as you read through the book of Ruth. And it is the theme of redemption. To redeem someone in the biblical sense is to free that person from the distress or harm of either isolation or debt or sin. Boaz redeems both Naomi and Ruth, rescuing them from poverty and ostracism. Boaz purchases Naomi's sold land back for her, and Boaz takes Ruth as his wife, fully integrating her, a Moabite woman, into Jewish society. But the redemption within the book of Ruth, oh, it does something far more than just talk about the redemption within the book of Ruth. It points to something much bigger, a much bigger redemption, the redemption of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, to properly understand and appreciate the book of Ruth, we will need to study and appreciate certain concepts that are not exclusive to the book of Ruth. And when we study and appreciate these concepts, like typology and like allegorical interpretation, and like other scriptures themselves, we will begin to fully appreciate the redemption that is ours in Christ. Just as Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi, so too God redeems us. Boaz serves as a type of Christ. A type of Christ is the study of typology. Typology is the study of types. A type is someone who reminds you of someone else by way of comparison. And so, this means that Boaz reminds us of Christ by comparison. And the most important way in which Boaz serves as a type of Christ is by being the kinsman redeemer. Consider Ruth chapter 3 verse 9 for just a moment. Here, Boaz asks, who are you? And then Ruth says, I'm your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. This is a very important uh, subcategory of redemption. The kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is a male relative who had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a family member who was in trouble, danger, or need. In this case, Boaz was related to Naomi's dead husband. And so he's got a family member, Naomi, and by law, Ruth, who are in big trouble. They are in big danger and they are in big need. And so the kinsman redeemer, kin, family member, redeemer, one who gets something back for you, has a job to do. In fact, the kinsman redeemer is all throughout the Old Testament law. If you look at Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25, you see these words. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, just like Naomi had to do, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. 
Anytime you sold property, even when you were poor in the Old Testament, you retained the right of redemption so that you could buy the property back. This was really important because Israel was a nation of tribes. And tribes, family groups, needed to have certain land mass that was for them. So even if you were in trouble and you had to sell some land to get out of that trouble, your family clan had the opportunity to buy that land back. The kinsman redeemer is the one who buys that land back. But it's not just land that they redeem. Later in Leviticus 25, uh, verses 48 through 49, we hear about someone who might be sold into slavery or into indentured servitude as an Israelite. They retain the right of redemption. One of their relatives or kin may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. So even if you get sold into slavery as an Israelite, your kinsman redeemer can rescue you out of slavery. This is really, really important. In fact, do you kind of see what this is all pointing towards without me even saying it? There's one more aspect of a kinsman redeemer. And this was described even before the Mosaic Law. In Genesis 38, there's a guy named Judah, and he has a son named Ur. Now, Ur dies. And so, Judah tells Ur's brother, Onan, concerning Ur's wife, to fulfill your duty to her as brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. This is a really big deal. If there was an Israelite guy who got married and then died, that guy's brother could marry the wife, have children with her, and that would continue the family line of the dead brother. That sounds weird to us. That sounds weird to us. But that is not weird to Old Testament stuff. In fact, it's not even weird in New Testament stuff. You remember when the, when the guys tried to trap Jesus in his words and they said, hey, Jesus, there's this lady and she's married and then her husband dies and then she marries the brother and then he dies and then she marries the next brother. And this happens like seven times. Whose husband or who gets to be the husband of this lady in heaven? And Jesus says, you fools. Do you know nothing about Scripture or the order of God? And he starts to teach them about marriage and about kinsmen redeemers. They knew about kinsmen redeemers, and they were trying to use that concept to trick Jesus. If we do not know about kinsmen redeemers, how can we possibly understand the redemption that is ours in Christ? God told us we were going to have redemption, and it was going to be from him, not just an earthly kin. In fact, in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, God Almighty says these words, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. With an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. God is declaring that he will be the kinsman redeemer. Not only will he redeem them, he will become their God. They will become his people. They will be together. Well, the people listened and they wrote in Psalm 77 verses 14 and 15, you are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among your peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. And in fact, in Psalm 130 verses 7 and 8, the writer says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Now, how is it that God will redeem us from all our sins. The way that God redeems people from their sins is through Jesus Christ. 
God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to live as a perfect human being, never to sin, but to become sin for us, taking our place on the cross, dying for our sins, and being raised from the dead for our justification. And when we place our faith in His good saving grace, the Holy Spirit comes into us. And in fact, the New Testament describes it just like that. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we read, But when the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you were His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. We can call out, Abba, Father. That means we are kin to God, but through adoption... By receiving the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, when we place our faith in Him, in us. The Holy Spirit comes in us when we place our faith in Him. And we become kin and He gets to redeem us. Oh, there's more. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And one more even, one of my favorite passages of all time, Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, uh, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of, our, uh, and the, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people of his very own that are eager to do what is good. A people of his very own. We become kin to Christ, which is why we get to be co-heirs with Christ. This is very, very important. Now remember Ruth 3.9. Who are you? Boaz asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. Now, spreading the corner of a garment was very, very important because the hem of certain ceremonial garments were kind of like military where you had certain ranks indicating who you were. And when you would spread the hem of a garment, sort of like the lady in Luke 12 who grabbed the hem of Jesus's uh, robe and was saved, when you place the hem of your garment over someone, you're saying, you're under my protection. You're under my protection. And as you read the book of Ruth every day, you'll hear Boaz talk about how we must all find protection under the wings of God. And now, beautifully enough, in Ruth 9, or 3, verse 9, we see a beautiful and poignant picture of a needy supplicant, unable to rescue herself, requesting that her kinsman redeemer cover her with his protection, redeem her, and make her his wife. In the same way, The Lord Jesus Christ bought for himself us out of the curse, out of destitution, and made us his beloved bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And he sacrificed himself for her to redeem her in the same way that Boaz redeems Ruth. 
It's all connected. In fact, as we read the book of Ruth, you'll see that nothing that happens in the book of Ruth is just stuff that happens in the book of Ruth. It is all way deeper than that. And so as Christ's bride, he marries the church, redeems those of us in the church, saving us. Boaz is a type of Christ and of godly wisdom. And Ruth typifies the wife of noble character. The book of Ruth is a story of redemption. And Boaz is a type of Christ, meaning he reminds us of Christ by what he does, and he reminds us of godly wisdom by what he does. He reminds us of Jesus Christ, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, the ultimate exemplification of wisdom. And in the same way, Ruth herself is a type of someone described in Scripture, the wife of noble character, found in Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. She's described as noble, valorous, trustworthy, diligent, compassionate, prudent, honorable, and one who loves the Lord. And so let's just read about how Proverbs 31 describes this woman. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it, and out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes covering for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She, she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also... And he praises her, saying, Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. I praise God for my wife of noble character. I love you, Kim, and I'm so grateful that you are my wife because you typify this very similarly to how Ruth does. You work hard. The instruction of the Lord is on your lips as you homeschool our daughters. You always get the job done. And I'm so proud to be your husband. All of us can grow in wisdom. And all of us can grow in nobility. Ruth is the embodiment the embodiment of the wife of noble character. That's why the Jews put her book immediately after those words. We put the book of Ruth immediately after the book of Judges because that's when it took place and to highlight the discrepancy between those Israelites who were faithful and the rest 
who are stuck in that cycle of sin, suffering, sorrow, supplication, and salvation. Yes, Ruth is the embodiment of the wife of noble character from Proverbs 31, just as Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of the kinsman redeemer foreshadowed by Boaz. The book of Ruth is worth our considered and focused attention. So let's all read it daily, along with Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, and one chapter from Proverbs 1 through 9 successively, every single day. And let's allow this daily bread to strengthen our discipleship. And that's what it will do. It will strengthen our discipleship as we learn about typology, as we learn about allegorical interpretation, as we learn about the words in the book of Ruth, as we learn about the words in Proverbs, as we grow in wisdom, and as we grow in nobility, and as we grow in our devotion to the Word of God, there will come heartfelt change, and there will come the opportunity to hold with our hands steadfastly to the Word of God and obedience thereto in total and stark opposition to the world around us, lost, dying, and groping after things not worth having. We have something worth having. Let's make sure we have it right, and let's make sure we share it with the world around us. Will you do it with me? I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be fun as together, as an entire congregation, we all allow God's word to shape us into the wise and noble disciples he wants us to be.